0: Welcome to the Christian Teaching Podcast. This is lecture number four of our Text and Transmission of Scripture class, and we are going to look at ten reasons why you can believe your Old Testament. And that will launch us into a more specific discussion in later podcasts of really specific issues such as do contradictions exist and what do we do with the more awkward passages of the Old Testament. But this will give us a foundation to realize that the case is solid and that the Old Testament's claim, to be the Word of God is validated both externally and internally. So I just want to give you 10 reasons to give you a basic framework, a basic understanding of how all of this works, of why you can put your full rest and assurance on this book that claims to be an ultimate authority from God. Before I get to reason number one, I just want to say something very briefly about Christian apologetics. Apologetics is a word that refers to one's defense of his faith or of his position, and so Christian apologetics is something that defends and confirms the Christian belief system. The Bible claims to be the ultimate authority for all, all things of whatever it speaks on. And so when we are dealing with an ultimate authority, it itself will ultimately prove itself. So we're going to discuss that a little bit further. I just say that at the beginning for this reason. When we are addressing christian apologetics and proof for the scriptures we need to understand something these may not convince the skeptic because he has certain presuppositions that will not allow him to embrace the veracity of scripture however the way i'm presenting this lecture is for believers it is to confirm us in our faith to show that it is a consistent faith to show that it is a faith worth having and defending So we're going to put to the test the internal and the external consistency of the Old Testament. So reason number one of why we should believe that the Old Testament is the Word of God is that it claims to be the Word of God. The Old Testament contains over 3,000 phrases like thus says the Lord or similar ones indicating that there is a prophetic voice throughout all of its pages as if this is a book that God has. And so it is self-aware of the fact that it is from God. So if you want to look at the individual aspects of the Old Testament, the three main portions, the first five books of the Old Testament, called the Pentateuch, was written by Moses. And that claims that he received his words directly from God on Mount Sinai. As you move forward in the Old Testament to the historical books and to the prophetic books, these were both viewed as being prophetic texts. texts, texts from prophets that demonstrated God's dealings with the nation of Israel in their history, and so both historical books and prophetic books from prophets as their authors have been proven and have claimed to be from God. So what about the poetic books then? Those are very clearly from God, because whether it be in the Psalms or in the Proverbs, these are books that were written by prophetic characters, by men who knew God, specifically David and Solomon, and those express divine wisdom like nothing else. So in each of these three sections, whether it be the Law, the Prophets, or the Writings, there. They are embedded with claims to be from God, so this book is self-aware. But it is also internally aware as other books comment on their predecessors. For example, Daniel quotes Jeremiah, and in Daniel 9 and 2, you will find this. Or you can find with the first five books of the Old Testament, the Torah. That is unquestionably viewed as scripture, especially as you go through the Psalms, or as you look in the book of Malachi, where he ends the prophetic period by calling the people to return to the law of Moses, as if that was their foundation. Or we can look at Malachi affirming the prophetic office of Elijah, in chapter 4 of his book, and so we see that prophets were affirmed to be from God. And we also find that for the historical books, the promises contained in them were taken seriously. For instance, in 1 Kings 8, Eight Solomon prays to God and says, If these people return unto you, even in their captivity, with all of their hearts, then hear them and allow them to return and to be restored. That promise is taken advantage of in Daniel chapter 9. So all of these books, whether it be in themselves or by other references, are seen as scripture. But we also see that even outside the Old Testament, even by other authors that were not scriptural writers. For instance, in 1 Maccabees, we see that there was this prophetic period that ended by the time of the Maccabees. So they says that there had not been such great a distress among the people, among Israel, since the time that the prophets ceased to appear among them. So they were able to distinguish when God was speaking and when God was not speaking. So this implies that they understood what was scripture. Or in the book of Sirach, in the prologue, the book of Sirach is also called Ecclesiasticus, it says many great teachings have been given to us through the law and the prophets and the others that followed them. And so it says for these we should praise Israel for instruction and wisdom. So it says, now those who read the scriptures must not only understand them, but also be lovers of learning. So there we find that even in this book of Sirach, in the Apocrypha, in the non-biblical writings, there is this affirmation of the law, the prophets, and the writings as being scripture. Or with Josephus, he clearly says that there are 22 books that are justly believed to be divine, and he does that when he is arguing against Appian in his first book, section 8. So why is this significant? Why does this proof even matter that the Bible claims to be the Word of God? Well, we would conclude that a book from God would be self-aware. So the fact that it is self-aware would be proof, because it does not then claim general wisdom, but it claims to be exact words from God. So then we come back to this idea of an ultimate authority. If the Bible really is an ultimate authority, it will be its own best Proof. If something is an ultimate authority, it cannot be validated by anything higher than itself, so it is ultimately circular. Now let me explain why that's not a bad thing. Logic is circular because we use logic to prove the existence of logic. Science we prove by science. Existence we prove by consciousness. So if the Bible is really from God, it is one of these fundamental realities of life that it is true because God has said so. Now how do we test an ultimate authority? We can't just go around saying that the Bible is true because it says so. But rather what we do is we accept its claim initially and then we test it by its own claims, and when we are testing it by its own claims, then we are able to see if there is internal consistency, if the ultimate authority is consistent with itself, and so that is the standard we will apply to scripture. So there's nothing wrong with approaching the Old Testament and saying that because it claims to be from God, that therefore it is from God, because if God said it and it really is the word of God, then it is its own proof. So that's just something to be aware of. The Bible is self-aware. It is self-validating. That is a basic principle of how God has spoken. And that is why many believers can have confidence in the scriptures without actually pursuing apologetics in a formal setting. So that's just begging to come to reason number two, which is this. The Bible demonstrates, the Old Testament demonstrates itself to be the word of God. So let's go through a couple lines of reasoning just to look at this idea. Number one, it explains the reason behind the supernatural. It explains the reality of the supernatural. Man always by himself tends to have inflated or deflated views of the supernatural. He never has this accurate clarity about him. But when we come to, say, nature, for instance, we see that the supernatural indeed does exist. We see that there must be a creator because there is design. We see that this creator must be spiritual and infinite and separate from his creation. We see that he must be self-sufficient and he must sustain all things. We also must see that he is a moral God because we have consciences. So all of these attributes of God are embedded in creation and yet it's just begging for more clarity and that's exactly what we find in the Old Testament. It tells us his name, it tells us that he is not only a creator but he reveals himself as Yahweh. It tells us that man is made in his image and that man is one race, something that is clear from nature but now has expression in words. It confirms to us that God's divine attributes are real, and it tells us not only what they are, but how he displays them. It tells us that God is a moral God and how he demands justice and how he will judge sin. It tells us that he is the only God and how he triumphs over idolatry. So here we have this explanation of the supernatural as we would expect if this book was truly divine. But not only that, the Bible is vastly superior to other ancient books. Other ancient books would include, say, the Vedas, which are the Hindu writings or the Book of the Dead, which was prominent in Egyptian religion, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a Sumerian legend of the flood, the sutras, which are Buddhist, or even the Taoist scriptures. All of these things are ancient writings, but either they are not self-aware, they do not actually claim to be from God, or they are just plain old crude or basic in what they are writing. There is nothing lofty about them. So this actually supports biblical revelation in a couple ways. For one thing, The books that are somewhat historically rooted legends actually confirm biblical history, such as the flood, such as creation, such as a utopia in ancient times. So the traditions from Eastern culture often have some variation of the biblical story, telling us that these stories are actually rooted in reality. The story has just been manipulated as the culture passed it down and tainted the story in places like Babylon and Sumeria. But the problem with books like these is that they clearly fall short, and let me give you a couple reasons for that. Number 1 is that they do not root themselves in historic or apologetic accountability. They are often didactic books that is they are only concerned with teaching. They are only concerned with nice moral sentiments. They are philosophy, they are traditions, and they're not even ashamed to call themselves that. Their followers are not even ashamed just to say that this is the wisdom of the ancients and they almost worship their ancestors in that way by saying that their wisdom is next to divine wisdom. But these books rarely have this self-conscious claim to be from God. And so that's a proof right there that they are not from God because a book from God should let us know that it is from God. But not only that, these books are extremely vague in terms of how they view deity. Their view of deity is either very unspecific or it is clearly based in superstition and legends. So the fact that they observe certain things from nature and then put that into writing does not imply that they have special revelation. It just implies that they are trying to make sense with their view of history and with their view of nature of what they know of God. But it does not show that God has specially entered into their culture and revealed something special to them. So the fact that Egypt, Greece, and Rome had a pantheon of gods associated with different aspects of nature shows that God was not revealing himself specifically, but they were simply attempting to make sense of nature. But the Old Testament is far superior to books like this. Not only that, but if the Old Testament were really from the God who cannot lie, we would expect it to be free from error. And that is exactly what it is. The Old Testament demonstrates that it's from God because it is free from error. So it has made itself accountable by making scientific statements, by making historical statements, by making religious statements, by making future predictions. Yet in all of these areas of high- High accountability, not just moral prescription, not just nice sentiments, but real accountability to actual records and actual history. It demonstrates that it's not afraid to state what is true and to demonstrate that it is true. And we find with all of this accountability that it proves itself to be entirely reliable and inerrant. So that is a mark of a divine book. But let me give you a practical reason that we should all appreciate and enjoy. The fact that this book demonstrates to be from God. The fact that its theology is divine, that its theology is beautiful, should allure us to understand more of where this book has come from. Consider just a few factors, and I've listed them and described them in the outline, but let me just go through a couple of these. These are really, really great themes in the Old Testament. The fact that monotheism exists in the Old Testament is absolutely staggering. It is not concerned with local deities like the cultural peers of its day was. Rather, it was concerned with a God who is one, a God who is true, not a God who is distant or even immoral, but a God who is singular and all-sufficient, and one who is worthy to be worshipped by the entire community. So monotheism ranks very highly in one of the unique aspects of Scripture. Not only that, but it has a perfect balance of justice and mercy. Whereas ancient law codes would often be biased in the law, and instead of having a just sentence, they would have a disproportionately hard sentence, In spite of that, the Old Testament gives the principle an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It is just. And yet it combines that with mercy. And in Micah 6 and 8, we see that God required of every Israelite these basic things, that a man should love justice, that a man should love mercy, and that he should walk humbly with his God. So the fact that there is this combination of governmental justice, morals, accountability, with personal mercy and love. That is a tremendously moral book, and a book that comes from a God who in himself is perfect. But I think one of the key demonstrations that the theology of the Bible is a divine theology is just that it contains the most beautiful literature ever written. Just read through the Psalms. Just read through the Psalms and see if you can't be drawn in by the power and persuasion of them. Just think about how these men who went through trials and difficult experiences could still look to their God and, sh- and say words like, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall shall not want. Or like in Psalm 103, where he describes the God who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Those are beautiful words, and they draw us to a God who in himself is beautiful and is glorious, and it reflects who he is. Not only that, but there is hope in the Old Testament. We see this confident expectation that not only will we live this life with the sufficiency of God on our side, but we will be one day received up into glory, that there is an afterlife, that there is a future that we can be confident in. But there are a couple things that really, really intrigue me if this book were not from God. The fact that the Old Testament perfectly sets up the New Testament is an absolutely staggering fact. It does this in a couple of ways. It does this by types and prophecies. And so we can see Christ in picture form. We can see constant illustrations of Christ throughout the Old Testament text. So I can look at Genesis 22, where Abraham offered Isaac, or I can look at the first few chapters of Leviticus, or Leviticus chapter 16, for the Day of Atonement, and the offerings, and all of these things. And I can see Christ clearly Demonstrated in them. And the New Testament picks up those themes and it says, hey, look, these were pointing to Christ all along, and look how clear they are. Not only how clear they are, but how they correspond to explicit prophecies that were given concerning Christ. Like, for instance, the fact, and we're going to get into this a little bit more, but just to give you a preview Psalm 22, the rest of the Messianic Psalms, or Deuteronomy 18, where it describes a prophet that God will raise up, or the servant songs of Isaiah. All of these Christ fulfills explicitly, and he is consistent with all of the themes of the Old Testament, whether it be the theme of righteousness, of redemption, of atonement, whatever it might be. The Old Testament perfectly sets up the Lord Jesus Christ. But even more staggering, even though the Old Testament is in itself a complete religious document, a complete document for the Jewish religion, it is also completely one with the New Testament. So the New Testament comes along and it describes all of these mysteries. So here the New Testament prescribes all of these mysteries that are being revealed and it describes the dawn of Christianity, of Christ's church. And yet, even though it is prescribing something so new, yet it is so rooted in what is old. You remember the Lord Jesus says that the scribe who understands the parables of the kingdom is like one who takes out of his treasury things new and things old. So that is essentially what the Old Testament and the New Testament together are. They are both old and new things, and yet they are perfectly one. I'm just amazed by the fact that the Old Testament can be a complete prescription for Israel in the days of its climax, and yet be so consistent with the Christian era. It's like it was designed, it's like it has multiple layers of depth that only God could figure out and that only God could plan in his way. So all of these things, all of its doctrines, all of its lofty concepts, it's just a book that is not crude. It's not crude. It is full of life and of vibrancy and it demonstrates and reflects the God who wrote it. So let's come to reason number three, and that is the fact that the Old Testament defends itself intelligently and timelessly. So the Old Testament is not afraid, and really, since we believe that the Old Testament is from God, God is not afraid to confront false ideas and false gods and false prophets and say, listen, let's test these two things and let's see who comes out the winner. So that's actually what you have in the Exodus account, in Exodus chapters 7 through 12, where we have the 10 plagues. God is actually dismantling every single one of the Egyptian gods that are linked with these various aspects of creation. And he culminates by attacking Pharaoh, who would have been the chief god to the people, and he kills Pharaoh's son. So God is absolutely destroying the Egyptian idea of who their gods are, and he, and he shows that he alone is the God of all creation, and he controls it all. There are not different gods for different aspects of creation, but rather he is the true God. So he basically confronts Egypt, and he dismantles it, and desecrates everything that it held dear to prove this fact. He alone is God. Not only that, but God is proved to be the God of truth because he's not ashamed to prescribe consequences for prophets that prophesy an untruth. In Deuteronomy 18, it says, how shall we know that a prophet, and this is my loose rendering, how do we know that a prophet is true when he is speaking? And God says, well, look to see if what he says comes to pass. Then you will know he is from me. If he doesn't, then he is a false prophet and he must be killed. So we continue that vein of thought in Jeremiah chapter 23, where the Lord says the prophet who has a dream may relate his dream, but let him who has my words speak my word in truth. What does the straw have in common with the grain, declares the Lord, is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock. So he is not afraid to confront false prophets, and he is not afraid to bring tremendous accountability to anything that he predicts for the future, because he is unashamed to say, what I say is true, and my prophets will always speak what is true. So he is willing to confront error and hold himself accountable, and that is just tremendous. Not only that, but God proved himself to be the God of every territory. You remember when Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, that's in 1 Kings chapter 18, the point that we often forget when we look at that is that Mount Carmel was in the territory of Baal. So Baal was the local god of the Canaanite people in that area, and what that would mean is that this god should have the jurisdiction, this god should have the power In this area. So when Elijah comes to represent the God who is Yahweh, the God of Judah, technically in the Canaanite mind, this God, Yahweh, should have no power in Baal's territory. So they go at a duel, and Elijah says, Whoever has the God that can consume the offering on the altar has the true God. And so when it comes to this test, what happens is the people who worship Baal called on his name and prayed that he would rain down fire to consume the offering, and they did that for hours, humiliating themselves, just trying to get this God to rain down fire and to consume the offering. Nothing happened. And Elijah actually started mocking them and and, and said, well, maybe he's asleep, you know, who knows? Uh, And then Elijah does his part. He goes the extra mile and he soaks his offering in water three times over. And he has this trench of water around the offering so that it would be even that much more remarkable for fire to consume the offering. And so he calls upon the God of heaven. He calls upon Yahweh. And out of heaven came fire that consumed not only the offering, but the altar with its stones and the water in the trenches. That was in Baal's territory. So God is challenging these idols constantly and proving they are dead. They are not living. I am the living God who is ruler of every domain. And so this is an example of how that is proven. Not only that, but God proved himself to be the living God. And yet when it comes to wooden idols and idols of stone, God only has words of mockery for them. He says in Isaiah 46, To whom would you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we would be alike? Then he says, Those who lavish gold from the purse, and weigh silver on the scale, hire a goldsmith and make it into a god. They bow down, indeed, they worship it. They lift it up upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in a place, and it stands there. It does not move from its place." Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. And so this idea that these gods are totally worthless and totally powerless and God has no problem exposing that. So throughout the Old Testament, it has no problem confronting false ideas and that just proves that this is from God. It's almost embedded with a challenge, I dare you to put God to the test, and you just watch yourself be humiliated as you try to destroy the scriptures. So that brings us to reason number four, which is that the Old Testament gives us a reliable worldview. Let me give you a couple illustrations of how this works. A worldview is essentially a way of looking at the world, and the test of a good worldview is if it is externally and internally consistent. In other words, if it works and is consistent as a system, but also consistent in its implementation, if it works, if it is a good way of looking at the world. So the Bible, the Old Testament specifically, gives us a reliable worldview. It actually works. One proof of this is that it embraces both the good and the bad. It faces things as they really are. This records the failures of some of God's chief men. It's not concerned with embellishing stories or bringing idealistic circumstances or legends. It just presents reality. It presents the God who is real and therefore it's realistic. So that is the clearest and most reliable worldview that there is. If something is just true and realistic. That is what we need for this life. We don't need idealism and we don't need legends. We need something that is real and that's what the Bible gives us. So along this line, the Old Testament allows us to interpret reality around us consistently. And so with the principles of the Old Testament, the fact that God is one, the fact that God is created reality and he created man in his image, it allows us to interact with every legitimate reality without shame because we have nothing to hide. We can interact with science, we can interact with history, we can interact with archaeology, we can do all of this because God is real. And having that Old Testament framework Helps us rather than hinders us in interacting with the world around us. Not only that, but this worldview explains the uniqueness and the nature of man. And that's usually where the problem lies in terms of a faulty worldview. Why is the world fine tuned to life? Why are we the only life inhabited planet in the universe? Why is man moral and clearly above the animals? These things can't be explained by evolution or even most religions. The Old Testament, though, explains why man is unique and why he is the center of creation, because God designed him that way and man was given the dominion. So the Bible explains man's heart, man's conscience, man's sinfulness, and it gives us the clearest picture of society and why it is the way it is. Not only that, but it doesn't describe us where we are, but it helps us to reach new heights. It prescribes goodness and it empowers changed lives. Scripture teaches that The young man to be pure, for instance, that is not natural. You can find that in Psalm 119 verse 9. It teaches the worried to be at peace. It teaches the oppressed to rejoice. It teaches those who are surrounded by death to be fearless. It teaches us not to relive the mistakes of the past, though we so often do so. It teaches us that history is linear. It is going towards a goal, that we are to invest in that goal. It's not simply cyclical, repeating itself as most ancient thinkers thought. And so it gives us this standard of morality, and it gives us the sufficiency of God to empower that morality. So the fact that scripture changes lives shows the power of what is written on its pages. Not only that, but scripture allows us to live with presuppositions such as science, logic, math, emotion, morality, reality, etc., And these all come from a God who is embedded with these things in himself. And so these are a reflection of who God is. So the Old Testament tells us who God is, and we see the reflection of that in every reality that we interact with. So that's why the Old Testament presents a solid worldview. We don't need to be ashamed of it. It is internally consistent. It is realistic. It is powerful. So that is why we believe in the Old Testament. Reason number five is that the Old Testament contains fulfilled prophecies, and so I've highlighted and quoted a number of these for you in the outline just so you can see the remarkable potency of biblical predictions. Remember, God will not tolerate error. God will not tolerate false predictions. So he is going to hold himself to that standard. So let's look at some prophecies. We're going to look at these in two main categories we're going to look at messianic prophecies and then national prophecies. So for this figure called the Messiah, this servant of Jehovah, and obviously this is Jesus Christ in the New Testament, this Messiah has very many prophecies attached to him and he is expected to fulfill them all. So the fact is that this Messiah is going to be a direct descendant of David. So that already exclusifies who this Messiah can be, because he is going to be Davidic. He is going to have kingly inheritance to him. So that is going to be a very specific person as it is, but it gets more specific than that. Not only is he from David, as is demonstrated in Matthew 1 and in Luke chapter 3, but his birth would be in Bethlehem. And in Micah 5 and 2, you can find that. It says, but as for you, Bethlehem, it says, from you will go forth for me, one who will be a ruler in Israel. And so in Luke chapter 2, we find that even though Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth, that they came to Bethlehem for the census and coincidentally, to the skeptical mind, Mary bore the child called Jesus, when they weren't even supposed to be in Bethlehem under normal circumstances, just a small insignificant city, and so he was born in Bethlehem. So here we have this one from David, born in Bethlehem, and not only that, but it describes the fact that he will be cut off. And in Daniel chapter 9, it describes that he will be rejected. And following his rejection, there would be a destruction brought about to Jerusalem and the temple. And so it says after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. So 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem was given, the Lord Jesus died. And following his death, In AD 70, Titus came in and destroyed and desecrated Jerusalem with its temple. So that is absolutely tremendous that this is prophesied in the days of Daniel. Not only that, but there are details of how he would be cut off. He would be crucified. And that's what we find in Psalm 22. The fact that crucifixion didn't exist when Psalm 22 was written is tremendous in itself. At least Roman crucifixion, that is. And it describes crucifixion this way before its time. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is what the Lord Jesus quoted on the cross. He was forsaken by God and that is how men viewed him, and he was actually forsaken by God because of sin. But then it goes on to describe the details of crucifixion, and it says that I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a clay pot it is it is there with no water in it whatsoever and it says my tongue cleaves to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death for dogs have surrounded me and a band of evil doers has encompassed me they pierced my hands and my feet i can count all my bones they look and stare at me they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots so again, let's think of this, Roman crucifixion did not exist in David's time, and yet here we have these descriptions of fatigue, of dislocation of joints, of piercing his hands and his feet, we have thirst described, we have The fact that he can stare at his bones, meaning his flesh was actually stripped from him, and that is in the scourge and in how he was beaten. We know this from the gospel narratives. But then it gives us this detail. It says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And that's exactly what we find in John chapter 19. The soldiers split his garments into four pieces, one for each soldier, but they did not want to tear his inner garment because it was seamless and that would destroy the garment if they tore it. And so what they did is they gambled for it. They had no clue that they were fulfilling scripture and yet here we have a crucified man forsaken by God in absolute pain and the soldiers who were ignorant of God fulfilled this prophecy too. And so they divided his garments among them and they cast lots for his clothing. So this is just a tremendously detailed messianic prophecy and there is no way this could have been rigged. But it goes further than that. We have the timing of his crucifixion in Daniel. We have the details of his crucifixion in Psalm 22. But as to the nature of his death and as to what his death anticipated, we find that explicitly revealed in Isaiah 53. It says that his death was not for his own sins. And so Isaiah 53 says he was Crushed for our iniquities. So the Lord Jesus could not be accused, and we find that in the Gospel of John, that there was no accusation that could be made against him. He was flawless, but he was there for our sake. He was there as a substitute. Not only that, but it describes what happened before he was crucified and even while he was being crucified. It says he did not open his mouth. That's in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was like a lamb that was silent before its shearers. But then it even describes how he was buried. It says his grave was assigned with wicked men... In other words, people who were crucified would just be discarded like worthless bodies. And yet, even though he was consigned to such a fate by crucifixion and by Roman standards, it says in Isaiah 53 verse 9, Yet he was with a rich man in his death. And so in John chapter 19, Joseph of Arimathea buries the Lord Jesus in his tomb. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, super rich, super influential, and of all people, this man was a secret disciple of the Lord. And he ensured that the Lord Jesus' body was not given over to corruption, but he buried the Lord Jesus in his tomb. So he was with a rich man in his death, because the Lord Jesus had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. But then it says these tremendous words it says, If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. His offspring. He died though, but it says this he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. So he would actually see the fruition of being crushed for the iniquities of others. He would see people saved from their sins, and it says he will prolong his days. He will rise again. His days will be extended, and he lives now in the power of an endless life. This is the Messiah who was predicted explicitly in the Old Testament, and every one of these details was fulfilled when he Died and was buried and rose again. These are all far too specific for one who was from David, for one who was from Bethlehem, for one who had all these details to fulfill. Far too specific to be deliberately embellished by the gospel writers. There are far too many details for this just to be a fictional sort of fulfillment. No way. These are historical narratives that are describing the facts, and all of these details were fulfilled. So that is a tremendous proof for the Bible's inspiration. These are not coincidental. They are from God. But there is another line of reasoning for prophecies, and that is national prophecies. Prophecies for nations that didn't even know God. Well, there is a prophecy about Israel, and we should mention that. The fact that Israel was prophesied to go into captivity, and it did, is part of the fact that God's will reigns supreme. So it says in 2 Kings 22 that Josiah's eyes, the last good king of Judah, would not see all of the evil that God would bring on that place. But when Josiah died, the kingdom of Judah was judged, and Babylon invaded and brought Judah into captivity. So that's recorded in chapters 22 and 23 of Second Kings. So Israel's captivity predicted and fulfilled. But what about Cyrus? There's this king named Cyrus, And the Lord says of him, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And it says, he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built and of the temple, your foundation will be laid. So God is describing that Cyrus will decree the rebuilding of Jerusalem and of the temple. This is before Cyrus even existed. This is 150 years before Cyrus, and yet it names him. And guess what we find in Second Chronicles towards the end? We have that decree from Cyrus to build the temple. What a tremendous prediction. It names him. It doesn't give this vague description. It actually names him. But there are also world empires that are predicted in scripture, and they actually develop. These are primarily in Daniel. So in Daniel chapter 2, you have that vision of the statue made of various elements, and those elements represent different kingdoms. And so we have the Babylonian kingdom represented by the golden head, then we have the Medo-Persian kingdom, then the Greek kingdom, and then we have Rome. And all of that is depicted by prophecy in Daniel chapter 2. And that's how world empires progressed, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. That's before Medo-Persia overtook Babylon. So that's tremendous. Not only that, but in Daniel chapter 8, we have a couple tremendous prophecies as well. We find that Medo-Persia would arise, but that media would be stronger than Persia. And then we find that after Persia, we have Alexander the Great conquering swiftly, and having his kingdom broken between four generals after his death. And that's exactly what happened. And that's described clearly in Daniel chapter 8, that there would be this this goat, this person from Greece. He's specifically described as being the first king of Greece. Remember, his father was Philip of Macedonia, not of Greece. So Alexander was the first of this Hellenistic empire. That's exactly what happened. But then it also describes Antiochus Epiphanes after the time of Alexander the Great devastating the Jews in the time of the Maccabees, and that is described in Daniel chapter 8 as well. So all of these tremendous, tremendous prophecies fulfilled exactly the Bible is true. Let me give you point number six then. The Old Testament is consistent with science. I'm just going to leave these scientific facts with you in the outline and their various scripture reference. They just confirm that whenever the Bible speaks about science, even though it's not a scientific textbook, it is true. And it is ahead of its time. And so let me give you just one example just to whet your appetite. Circumcision was prescribed on the eighth day in Genesis chapter 17 and Leviticus chapter 12. Why on the eighth day? These ancient people just were obeying the word of God, but research has shown today that the eighth day is where the blood clotting patterns peak for a baby. And so how convenient that God would prescribe circumcision on the eighth day where blood clotting would be the easiest. That's something they couldn't have known, and yet God prescribed it. So that's an example of how the Bible is ahead of its time, the Old Testament specifically. Let me give you reason number seven. The Old Testament is consistent with history and archaeology. So I've given you a number of illustrations and accounts of archaeological discoveries that were once reasons why people rejected the Bible. But let's go through a couple of those just to see. No, the Old Testament is actually true. I think one of the most interesting historical realities is that even secular world history accounts cannot go back farther than the period of time described by Genesis. You can't go beyond 4,000 BC with any meaningful insight. It's either 5,000 BC that they go up to, 7,000, 10,000, but they have to admit that history just stops before that time. And in fact, there is this strange explosion of history around the time that Genesis records. So that's really interesting. That really fits good with a biblical worldview, this idea that history starts when man starts. Uh, Really, this flies in the face of evolution, because The fact is, if man developed slowly over time, shouldn't his writing have developed slowly over time as well? And yet there is this explosion of writing around 2,000 years before Christ. That just doesn't make sense, really, unless we believe in creation and in the flood and in civilized, God-designed humanity. So the fact that civilizations go no further than Genesis is a proof that this is consistent with reality, with history and archaeology. What about the Hittites? The Hittites were for a long time a subject of much criticism because there was no evidence for them whatsoever until 1906. And so pre-1906 scholars used to mock the Bible because it mentioned this apparently fictitious people called the Hittites. But in 1906, an archaeologist excavated a Turkish city and they found temples, they found storehouses, they found sculptures, and they found 10,000 clay tablets. And that is where they found the Hittite capital, and so biblical criticism was embarrassed yet again. The Hittites did exist, and they were actually quite prominent and large. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? This one is really intriguing. So the location of these is described in the Old Testament as being by the Dead Sea. So research has been done around that area, but only in the 1970s did people unearth actual remnants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what did they find? Interesting. They found that there were remains of ash, crushed towers, buried victims, and burned artifacts covered in ash, and the city was overthrown and destroyed. Well, that's interesting. That really, really coincides with the fact that God rained down fire and brimstone upon these people. And this is actually dated to the time when Sodom and Gomorrah would have happened according to the biblical narrative. So that is just tremendous, this idea that Sodom and Gomorrah actually shows evidence of fire and brimstone according to the discoveries. What about the time that the Hebrews spent in Egypt? Is that documented? Well, a couple keys would be given to us, the fact that some of these Egyptian cities doubtless came from Hebrew names, from Hebrew terms, and the fact that so many Hebrews after the apparent exodus came out with Egyptian names, such as Moses. So the fact that these Egyptian names were so popular and prominent in early Israelite history shows us that they clearly did spend time in Egypt. So that's a historical reality. We can trust the book of Exodus. What about the walls of Jericho? Archaeology has discovered that Jericho was indeed subject to the destruction of its walls and the burning of its city as recorded in Joshua. Then we come to facts about the monarchy of Israel. And let me give you a couple inscriptions, ancient inscriptions, that demonstrate that, yes, the monarchy of Israel was recognized in ancient days. These are not legends. The Tel Dan stone, for instance, references the house of David and the king of Israel that was conquered by an Aramean king. So that proves that David was a historical character and he had a historical dynasty. Then we have the Moabite stone, and this is another example of an enemy speaking of Israel in relation to battle. So the Moabite king Misha speaks of Omri, the king of Israel, and his son. His son, we know from the book of First Kings, was Ahab. It also speaks of the tribe of Gad. It actually even references Yahweh as being the god of Israel. That's very unique for non-religious extra Old Testament writings. It also speaks of the king of Moab rebelling against paying tribute after Ahab's death. And this is exactly what we find in 2 Kings 3 verses 4 to 5. So Misha is referencing Israel and 2 Kings 3 references Misha, the Moabite king. So this tells us that Israel was aware of its ancient peers and Israel's peers were aware of Israel. They were not in a vacuum. They were real historical characters. And so we can trust the king's narratives of the Old Testament. Then we have, lastly, what is called Sennacherib's prism. This records Sennacherib's attack on Israel. And we also find this in Isaiah 37 and 2 Kings 19. And yet, interestingly, the record on Sennacherib's prism, Records Sennacherib actually imprisoning Hezekiah and defeating Jerusalem. But Isaiah 37 gives a different story and it says that God protected Israel and that Sennacherib went to his homeland defeated. So these are just records that validate the fact that these historical characters of the Bible were recognized. So very quickly, then, reason number eight is that the Jewish nation has stood against all odds. So let's look at a couple of factors here. The judgment of the Jewish nation makes sense for the fact that they are God's people who rejected him. So consider the brutality of things like the captivity, the dispersion, the oppression of the Seleucids before the time of Christ, the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in AD 70, the Holocaust, the constant hatred and political antagonism pitted against the Jews. Does that make sense for a very small nation and ethnicity that doesn't really matter? it seems clear that they are bearing judgment for rejecting God. They have been set aside, and yet they are still central because they were and are God's people, though they are currently set aside. But what about, for instance, the fact that the nation has actually lasted, that it has not been destroyed? This is the fact that it is under God's purposes still, and it is protected by God. After all that the nation has endured, it is still able to be identified as a nation. And in fact, in 1948, Israel was re-established as a nation with Jews coming and re-inhabiting Israel like never before. How could a nation last after so much disruption and so much misidentity for 2,000 years? This is clearly consistent with the promises to Israel in the Old Testament. Another question, why is Israel so hated, though it is so small, if not because God has chosen the nation? Think about the news today. Think about history. Why is Israel so central? Why is it the center of the news? Why does everybody hate Israel for no reason whatsoever? Maybe it's because they bear the mark of God's choice and that will culminate in a coming day in a battle called, called Armageddon where the entire world is against Israel and where the Lord Jesus will come and will destroy Israel's enemies once and for all. But that is a day yet future. So the biblical account and description of Israel is consistent with the history of the Jews. What we see of the Jews in the Bible is not unreal. It makes perfect sense in light of what history shows us. So again, that, revert, that reverts back to the point I said about the Old Testament giving us a reliable worldview. So it is with the Jewish nation. In fact, any other worldview can't really explain the Jewish nation in all of its complexities like the Bible can. Reason number nine why we should trust the Old Testament is that its text has been reliably transmitted. Now, we have already covered this in a past lecture, so I will not go into depth, but let me just hit three points. It has been transmitted diversely, first of all. There are various ancient versions that contain the Old Testament, and so we find that it was not the purpose of those who had the Old Testament to manipulate people's minds, but rather there was a sincere effort to propagate this book because it was believed to be from God. Not only that, but it has been transmitted carefully, and we know this by the Masoretic text, copied by Masoretes, whose religious commitment to accuracy was probably even overkill by our standards. So, for instance, they would have to bathe before they wrote the holy name of God, Yahweh. They didn't even pronounce the holy name of God they kept a rigorous notation system for correct readings and interpretation of the text by the rabbis. They had to make sure that in the manuscript they were copying, the middle letter of their current manuscript matched the middle letter of the manuscript they were copying. So they were extremely laborious and painstakingly careful to make sure that their scriptures were copied accurately. And so that's why we find, that even though the Masoretic text is 1,000 years after Christ, it is very close to the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were a couple hundred years before Christ. And so the text has been reliably transmitted. Let me just close with reason number 10 and that is the fact that unbelief is irrational. Let's consider the alternatives of Christianity. There aren't really billions of belief systems that we have to address individually. They all really boil down to a few main factors. Let's just consider a couple of them. It's ridiculous to claim, first of all, that God does not exist. That's a basic claim that categorizes a bunch of people. It is ridiculous to claim that because design is absolutely undeniable. So if we look at the alternative of atheism, it really doesn't hold water. So if we reject Christianity, we don't have anything in atheism. Not only that, but secularism and evolution destroy society. They are proven to be destructive. So it is ridiculously to knowingly reject God because that is not reliable either. It's also ridiculous to embrace polytheism, which makes up the majority of the world's religions, because those religions are clearly superstitious and tradition-based. They cannot defend themselves on any meaningful basis except just for the fact that they have blind faith. So if we turn from Christianity, we can't go to atheism, we can't go to polytheism, we can't even go to comparative monotheism like in Islam, because Islam claims to be an Abrahamic faith and yet does so falsely and it rests upon a works-based salvation. So the fact is there's not really much to choose from in terms of belief systems and anything alternative to the Bible is untenable also if we were to reject the Bible. But the fact is, we don't reject the Bible for good reasons, because in light of what there is to believe, Christianity, the Old Testament, is the most reliable, the most important, the most sustained and strong book ever to exist, and that is why we believe it. Anything compared to it breaks and shatters, embarrassingly so, when compared with the strength and the endurance of the Old Testament. But there's a bigger issue here. If we were to reject the Old Testament, that would be ridiculous because rejecting the Old Testament has to be done on naturalistic assumptions, if we are coming at it from the atheistic perspective. So skeptical scholars feel that they have the right to reject all supernatural claims of the Old Testament simply because they are supernatural. They begin with the presupposition that everything can be explained by science. However, they do not have the right to do that for two reasons. Number one, they themselves do not live by science only, because they have to acknowledge the immaterial nature of the soul, of morality, and of emotions. There is no good explanation of these things by observable science only. Number two, they do not have this right because they are living in an embarrassingly small minority in terms of history. Most societies and civilizations have believed in God, or at least some form of deity, because eternity is written on man's hearts. So it is really arrogant to say, well, you can't claim the Bible because the Bible contains things that are above nature and beyond nature. Well, why is that a problem? Who made the rule that the supernatural is unreal or unreasonable? Who made that rule? Who made that rule? It is simply unfair for a skeptic to pretend that he is on neutral ground. He is just as biased as we are. They do not have a meaningful neutral ground because they have the bias of anti-supernaturalism. In fact, I would say that supernatural claims are normative, historically speaking, and so we have the more neutral ground by believing that God can actually enter into his humanity and interact in that way but ultimately this becomes a moral issue. Skepticism against the Old Testament is moral at its core. If you look at many arguments against the Old Testament, they are based on misinterpretation, repeated cliches that are just bad, and they show a presupposition of a predefined human morality. So, for instance, the Bible describes a God who is holy. That's unacceptable to someone who is a rebel at heart. So they will criticize and they will mock the idea of a God who is holy and who must judge sin. But they have no right to do this because there is nothing intrinsically wrong with worshipping a God who is holy. Secondly, the Bible mandates accountable living. And that's obviously going to be terrifying for someone who loves pleasure at the expense of their... Purity, so obviously people will mock the Bible because it mandates purity, but it also describes things like gender distinctions and cultural conditions, and these are against postmodern thinking. And so obviously they will say, oh, look, the Bible is sexist, but the reality is, who told you that you get to define what gender looks like? Who told you you get to define that? Why do you think that you're on neutral ground? The reality is that humans who reject the Old Testament have a clear moral bias. They do not want to submit, whether in scholarship or in their spirits, to what God has said because their hearts are rebellious and they are under sin. So Romans 1 is going to give us the conclusion to why man ultimately rejects God, and this will apply to our Old Testament study. It says in Romans chapter 1 For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise, they became fools. Man's ultimate problem is not with biblical scholarship. Man's ultimate problem is with the God of the Bible himself. And so skepticism is unreasonable in itself, it is based on naturalistic assumptions, and it is moral at its core. So that is why, even if we were to reject the Old Testament, the best we would be left with is a wasteland Land of ignorance. There is nothing good even if there were alternatives. The Old Testament is the only meaningful basis for living and for worshiping God. And this will also apply to the New Testament, but I just have to emphasize the Old Testament because that is the subject of this lecture. So hopefully that gives you an idea of why we trust the Old Testament, why it is beautiful to us, why it matters to us, why we defend it at all costs. Let's just make sure we do defend it, though, because it is true whether we like it or not. It is from God. It is embedded with his stamp of divine authority. So let's worship God as described in the Old Testament, and let's make sure we rejoice in who he is and the fact that he has revealed himself to us. Well, that's all for today. If you would like more resources like this, visit us on christianteaching.org. Don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter and check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes as well. Until next time, I'm your host, Micah Hackett. God bless.